all CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where I talk to founders, entrepreneurs, and operators about all things value creation in startups. Today, I am stalking, talking, stalking. I am stalking, too. I'm stalking and talking to Scott Garber, Managing Director of Early Light Ventures, which is a pre-seed fund, seed fund. Are, you're on the East Coast, right? Are you in D.C.? D.C., that's hardcore. Kind of. Yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Scott, former CIA operative, spy, now now venture capitalist. Tell us your story. Where can I start? Um, let's let's go to teenager with the beanie babies. <laughs> <laughs> so funny enough, I was into beanie babies when I was twelve and had a quote-unquote business selling them online back in eBay when it first got started and moved on to Pokemon cards. I actually had a Charizard. I think it was a first edition Charizard when I was 13 because I ended up buying packs really, really early on when they first landed here in the U.S. Lost track of that Charizard, which probably would have been a nice thing to have right now because I think it was in pretty good condition because I never really played it. But sold some of the cards, not that one. Probably should have kept that and not lost it. Ended up investing in the stock market when I was 12 and 13 and 14 years old. Got really interested in that. Thought I was going to be on Wall Street later on. Uh, obviously, did not end up on Wall Street for better and for worse, I think. So, wait. So, let's go back to the Pokemon because I think it really takes a very interesting man to say that he was very into Pokemon because I'm a dork <laughs> by heart. Like, I, I love comic books. I read fantasy and sci-fi. Is that something you've always been into as a kid? But you're also you're also into sports, which I don't relate to. Yeah, I was a weird kid. Well, I'm always <laughs> weird and cold too. Sometimes um, I'm a weird kid too. Just a fat redhead. No one liked me. But go ahead. You're, <laughs> this is your show. So I, I did play a lot of sports growing up. I, I played baseball, basketball, lacrosse. I ran cross country. I played pretty much every sport under the sun except golf and tennis and didn't play soccer, oddly enough. Uh, but I also was into Pokemon and I was into Beanie Babies and all the, the you know nerdy stuff too. I used to code a little bit when I was a teenager. I actually coded a Pokemon website when I was 13. Uh, I launched that thing. It was actually one of the more popular sites way back when, when there was pretty much no one online. I used to customize, actually. I used to customize... I think it was, I got to look, maybe it was, was a Squirtle, Bulbasaur, Charmander, might have been Pikachu. I can't remember. It was like 3D images of them, which were not my images. And I put someone's name on there and put patterns on it. I'd give it away for free just to people that would want it. I had that too. I didn't make money on that, but I had that plus the cards. Do you play Dungeons and Dragons? I never got into that. Yeah. I, I mean, it was a little bit, I mean, a little here and there. We never like played officially, like with the dice, we would just like make shit up. What about gaming? Are you a gamer? I was when I was a, a little kid. I mean, I was younger. I liked computer games. I played Mario, Sonic, all those stereotypical ones. I never got into like the hardcore gaming, though. Yeah, not, yeah, me either. Um, I wish I did. I wish I had the time. Like, I think I would be a better gamer now than I would when I was a kid. I just like to disassociate. I, mean, I was actually, I was actually better as a kid because I got the Nintendo Switch and I've got the whatever the retro pack is. 
mm-hmm. and I'll play Mario one, two or three. And I was better at Mario two specifically when I was like eight or nine years old, wherever I was when it was launched, I was way better back then. Mario two is fantastic. I can never control like the, the things you climb up. I climb up at least with the switch controller. I'm going up and down. I keep falling off every like two seconds. I'm like, I just go to Mario three. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just, just fast forward in time. So now you're uh, skipped Wall Street. Now you're a venture capitalist. Pretty much. <laughs> so what? And you started angel investing, correct? Yeah, it was a whole journey. I mean, I was a founder once in college, once out of college. The first was, I would say, it was pretty successful. The second was successful, then unsuccessful, successful, then unsuccessful. In the end, learned a lot from that experience. I'd interned at the CIA in college, like at the Full Scope Lifestyle Poly. Didn't think I'd be making a career of. Langley didn't think I'd go back quite frankly, especially after the companies and needed a little bit of a reset when I was 23 and went back and did all sorts of stuff on the analyst side of the house, the operational side of the house, uh, some other things in there outside of there. And then sort of met a a mentor of mine who I I didn't know what I was doing with the venture investing. I would heard of it. Obviously I'd been exposed to it with my own companies. I've exposed to it in other ways didn't know what I was doing. And I basically watched him invest angel invest over the course of three years and saw the results he was getting, which were pretty ridiculous and loved that kind of work and asked him one day, like I'm clearly on this direction, what I was doing with him and some other people. Should I go in this direction? Should I go into venture? I, I love doing it. Should I do it? Like candidly, am I good at this? Do you think I'm good at this? And he looked at me, he's like, yeah, you should do it. And that was coming from someone that averaged 22 times returns as investments, angel investments. Like, okay, if he believes in me, I should start doing it. So I started putting my own money into the thesis I'd always, I'd always had. And that's sort of how it got from you know, no experience in venture to having two venture funds. And so just to go back a little bit past Pokemon before venture funds, before angel investing, that, well, well, how does one get recruited into, into CIA? It wasn't hard. So I went to UVA undergrad and there's obviously engineering fairs, there's business school fairs, there's arts and science. I mean, all the different career fairs they had. I was meeting a friend at the engineering school. I didn't actually go to the engineering school as a business. I was actually almost a history major for the first you know two years. And I was comp school, which is a business school at UVA. And this is when I was a history major, undeclared, whatever I was. I met one of the recruiters there who was at the CIA and said, Hey, like I'm intrigued by this. I live in DC. My parents live in DC. Like, do you have any roles for someone with a background like mine? And they're like, yeah, we do. So I interviewed, got a job offer pretty quickly, went through the clearance process, which took a lot longer, and then interned there in the summer. So what was the, like, I mean, obviously you can't share a lot of stuff. Um, I know another, do you know Wes um, over at Next Frontier? You know, he had... Uh, Actually, Next Frontier. Next Frontier Capital up in Montana. I actually don't know him. Yeah, um... Les Craig, he was, he's a VC, but he, he was a West pointer and then did some time in the CIA. And he told me, he's like, whatever you think the training was is exactly what the training was. But after the training, it was the most boring (laughs) thing I've ever done. Um, which was kind of interesting. Yeah. I saw some of the most interesting stuff that is going on in there and it was not a, it's not the movies. I'll put it that way. Right. So, what is what's transferable for you, right? Like, what did you take out of that experience that that helps you today? A couple of things. I mean, when I was in it for the number of years I was in it, I was—I mean, candidly, I was a little bit worried. I was like, "What? 
what am I going to take from this experience wise that I can actually talk about or accomplishments I can talk about? What skill set am I going to bring to the next job that I can show someone that's going to hire me? Like, what is this actually going to, what, what, what is, what value is going to come out of this job outside of what I've been doing? And one of the really unexpected things is I had to learn how to read body language to survive internally. I was really the jackass kid running around solving crazy problems for years and years and years doing, I mean, all around the agency. And I was always just like novelty act in meetings. I was always younger than everyone else. I was always in meetings that people were like, like, who the hell is that kid? Like, what is he doing here? And then some of the stuff I was doing internally, I had to read the people I was working with to figure out, can you actually go out and do what you're saying you're going to do? And sort of that process of reading people internally to survive and reading people as part of the job, reading founders is actually a big part of being a venture capitalist. I mean, it's obviously you have to find the deals and you have to source and you have to have a network to source a lot of good deals, good quality deals. But you have to pick the right ones. And picking the right ones, a lot of it comes down to, does the founding team or founder have what it takes to actually build this company to where it needs to go? And a lot of that is sort of, do they believe it themselves and can they do it? And so from a body language perspective, how is that presented? So there are a lot of things. I mean, I, I, there are a lot of little things I do on a Zoom. I mean, Zoom is actually just as good as in person to me because almost all the body language is in the face. I said, if someone's at home, a founder's at home, they're a lot more relaxed. Mm-hmm. Then if you go meet them in a coffee shop, it's like, all right, I got to go pitch and I'm you know, kind of buttoned up and there's a little bit of a wall up and I'm more protective. I try to keep things really relaxed and I want it to be relaxed because I want their true intentions in there. I'll ask really open-ended, broad questions. I'll have you know, random pauses to see how they filled that. I'll ask for examples and all sorts of different things. And I'm asking about certain things I need to know about, like the pipeline, the rest of the team, the industry, the competitors, where the exit is going to be, at least in their mind. All sorts of different things that I'm asking them about. And a lot of it comes down to, does the founder have what it takes to take the revenue from X to where it needs to be to an exit or to go public, although really in most cases to an exit for where I invest? Um, you know, do they have what it takes and do they have the right product? Do they know how to sell it? Do they know how to present it? Do they know how to raise money enough to get enough money in the door? All the little things that amount to actually getting a good outcome. So what are some of the tells of when they, for instance, like one of the things that I feel as a VC, just to give, set the stage, right. For, for this question is that, you know, we generally fund companies that can get into some area of liquidity, you know, through some kind of growth equity or strategic recap. And um, if, uh, because we do, you know, verticalized SaaS solutions that are, are pretty niche, uh, in venture lands, founders are taught to explain, you know, to say that, you know, we were, we're addressing the biggest market and we're building the biggest company possible. And so when I ask questions around that, there's two ways to do it. I can wait to hear that response, which is what they were trained to do. Or I can give them permission by giving my intent and like how what I believe in the firm. But when I do that, I'm guiding the witness, right? So how would you think about doing that in a more effective way? So I do it, I mean, literally every day on these pitches. And it's, I would guide the witness, so to speak, early on. And you get the answer you want to get, which isn't usually the answer that I want to get because I want them to actually give me the real answer of what they want to do with the company. And I can get that through body language but I don't want to lead them. So I'll say, Hey, like, where do you think the company is going to go in a good world in a bad world in a you know realistic world? Where do you want the company to exit? Where do you want the future to look like? And that gives me a lot of hints, how they answer it, where they take the conversation. I try not to react too much to what they're telling me. If they're like, I'm going to become a hundred billion dollar company. It's like, 
I'd probably start laughing because the odds of me finding a hundred billion dollar company are pretty much zero or almost, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's really unlikely. Even 10 billion, it's really unlikely. Even 1 billion is pretty unlikely to some extent. Um, but it, you know, and, and there are a lot of them are conditioned. If you're pitching a West coast stereotypical Silicon Valley VC and you're like, where do you want to exit? And they're like, Oh, a billion dollars. And you're like, okay, I, I gotta go. Thanks. Mm-hmm. It's gotta be, you know, $50 billion. And I'm going to be the top player in this market in six to eight years. And I'm going to go public and be this huge IPO versus, most exits are under a hundred million. This is where they are. And I know founders need to be optimistic and that is part of it to do what they're doing and work as hard as they're working. But I think that, I think it's what you're hinting at. Basically, if someone gives an answer where they're like, you know, 150 million, which really means like 50 million where they want to exit. Like, is that okay? Yeah, it's okay to the right VCs and the right funders. Mm-hmm. And so you're okay guiding the witness, but you look for other tells to see if they're just telling you what they want to hear or what you want to hear essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically. And then how do you identify grit? Because I feel like that is something, I mean, I've just, I've, I've been right before and I've been wrong before. Um, so how do you think about it? So I'll ask them, like, tell me about your childhood. Tell me about how you founded the company, why you founded the company, your tracks so far in the company. And I'm really looking for examples of overcoming something or having to fight for something. I look at their background pretty hard. And I don't mean like doing a background check, but like, what schools did you go to? How'd you get the jobs that you got? How'd you get your initial clients? You know, how hard did you have to work to get where you're at right now, basically? And if it was sort of handed to them on a silver platter, I get really skeptical because I want someone that like, we're looking for the same thing. You want a fighter that's going to fight through everything. It's going to run through a brick wall, over a brick wall, 10 brick walls, whatever it takes to get there. Sure. Sure. Um, and so tell me about early light. The fund or the thesis or I'm going uh, anything. Everything, everything. So I always wanted to do a venture capital fund ever since meeting this mentor of mine. And I knew I had to prove out this thesis. It wasn't just going to, I wasn't just going to show up and be like, all right, here's a bunch of money. Go run a fund. You have to go fundraise, which as you know, is not, uh, not always easy. It's usually not easy at all. So I knew I had to prove out this thesis, which I'd always had with my own money as an angel investor over the course of multiple years and really like show investors. Here's what, you know, I think I can get because I just got it from my own money. And that thesis, which I know you're familiar with is, there are a ton of exits under a hundred million. There's a ton of exits under even 50, 60 million. And a lot of them are cash. They're quick. They're competitive. There's multiple buyers that can be involved. The board doesn't have to approve 25 things. It's just, you know, they're easy tuck in acquisitions in a lot of cases. could be strategic, could be PE, could be anything. The idea is that you get in at a real valuation. It could be a three or four or five or six or eight or whatever it is, pre-money or cap. The company doesn't raise a ton of money to get to an exit. So they go from, let's call it like a, seven post money or eight post money when they're at three or four or five or six or eight, whatever they're at ARR wise, you get to five or six or 10 in ARR and you sell the company. And it could be 25. It could be 80. It could be a hundred. It could be 150. The idea is there's not a ton of dilution. They're not spending a ton of money. So you've got decent downside protection. And usually the sale is an easy one to a lot of different people. So you can kind of play them off each other. So it's sort of hunting for that, like four to eight X, four to 10 X, few the kind of like a baseball analogy because i have like 100 baseballs you can't see on my desk a lot of singles a lot of doubles some occasional triples maybe an accidental home run very few strikeouts and i need to see those founders work the count i need to see them really kind of work to get on base Mm -hmm. um you know this isn't like a you step up to the plate you baby roof it then you hit a grand slam and it's you know a giant it's just not how it works right and so um when you think about you know 
taking these things to market? Because I remember you said your your first fund, you you know, were really made sure to sit on boards, and you're less interested in that now. Tell me about that transition. So this has been a long time lesson. Uh, as a solo GP, it's uh, you wear a lot of hats. I mean, my day is different to some extent, but it's also similar every day. I mean, it's LP relations right now. I'm still fundraising for fun too. Thankfully I'm almost done. So fundraising is a big part of my day. LP relations is a big part of my day. Portfolio sort of management and help. That's a big part of the day with fund one. If a founder needs something or wants advice on something, I'm going to hop on the phone or hop on a zoom and try to help them. There's uh, sourcing new investments. So I've got a network of 300 and almost 350 funds I work with across the country, keeping that hot and keeping that relevant, sending deals back and forth, giving feedback to people, uh, back and forth, them giving me feedback and me giving them feedback, screening new deals, getting on the phone or Zoom with new, with new founders I'm evaluating, doing diligence on those deals, writing up the memos, doing the quarterly update. I mean, like it just, there's so many different things happening every single day that it's, you know, everything's different, but it's also pretty similar. Um, where can I go on this question? Because <laughs> I can talk for a while. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you, so basically it's just a time thing and you just didn't feel like your first one, you felt like you, you had the time and you need to be on boards and now you feel like you don't have the time. Yeah. A little bit of that. I also was encouraged by some investors that you got to lead rounds, you got to sit on boards, you got to do this to get a bigger fund. And you know, as an angel, I wasn't leading any rounds. I wasn't writing checks that would justify that. It wasn't even close. And I was getting more intel than board members in a lot of cases. Cause I would listen to founders. I wouldn't judge what they're telling me. I want them to give me the full picture of what's happening. And I'd give them advice, good, bad, or ugly. And I try to help them and then get the hell out of the way. As a board member, it's a little harder to do that. You still can. But I get the same information on the companies in Fund One I'm not on the board of and then the ones I am on the board for. You just have a lot more responsibility. And given I don't have a minimum check size, I don't have an ownership target, I don't need to lead a round. There's no point in me actually leading a round. So at Fund Two, I'm hopefully going to lead next to nothing. And sort of follow on with other funds because that's the strategy. Gotcha. And so, uh, how do you think about miss rates? Because you're coming in at pre-seed, seed. You're trying to minimize miss risk rates. You know, there is a. I mean, I guess you consider a power law ish kind of component to it, right? As some, you know, I mean, how, let, let's let me rephrase. Tell me about portfolio construction. This is where it's different, and I have to educate LPs, and it's it's good and bad. It's it's for. So I have about 14 existing GPs of other funds, former or current GPs invested in my funds. And when I go over the portfolio with them and the strategy with them, it's like, I get it. Totally makes sense. This is, I, I buy it. I love it. Really, really simple conversations. I'll talk with other LPs that are very business savvy. These are ex-CEOs of giant companies. Don't understand venture as, as well because venture is just such an, it's an oddball asset class, as you know. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not like a lot of other asset classes. It's really unique. It's very niche. It's kind of small, really. And I'll go over sort of the portfolio dynamics of what I'm looking for. And it just gets lost, I think. Because most people, most LPs, when they think of venture, they think of, you know, that's stereotypical of 1,000x, 100x or bust. Like a lot of zeros, maybe like a couple 1x's, some like 5 or 10x's, and then like 100x's makes or 1,000x. This makes the firm or makes the portfolio or makes the portfolios. The way I've always thought about it is most of these exits are smaller, at least the better ones. If you get it at a good valuation and you get out at a pretty good valuation or at least a decent valuation and the company grows and the founder fights for what they're doing, you'll get a good outcome. So my portfolio math, Fund 1 was a little bit different because most of that money was deployed in 2021. Most of my money in Fund 1 came in mid-2020, kind of end 2020, early 21. I deployed it, most of it in 21. 
which I think will be historically, I don't know how to describe this. Bad vintage would probably be understatement. I think, mm-hmm. uh, I don't even know how to describe it. It's, it's going to be horrifically bad, I think, for a variety of reasons. So ordinarily, when you're investing, you're on more of an offensive mindset. I think 2021, I was on a defensive mindset of, I need to avoid risk wherever I can. I need to deploy it, but I got to avoid risk. So it was higher floor, lower ceiling type deals. So a lot of like one and a half, although gaming more like two to five X is where I was aiming. Realistically, probably a lot of like one and a half to three, three and a half X type exits. Pretty quick exits, you know, two, three, four, five years. Generally all cash. But the thing with fund one is it's going to have a really low failure rate, probably sub 10%, could be sub 5%, which is really abnormal for venture. For, for fund two, probably targeting less than 15%, 20% failure rate, a lot of 4 to 10 Xs. I'm aiming for a lot of like, call it 5 to 7 is sort of the sweet spot. You think about that company, that's a, a 6 or 8 post, and they sell between like 40 to 80. It's sort of like the sweet spot of what I'm looking for, having a ton of those. A couple that are maybe 10 or 20x, not many, and very few failures. That's sort of how the portfolio works. As an angel, it's how it's worked. It's a 5.1x realized, and I think it's like a 61% realized IRR. It's a 12% failure rate of those companies. So a lot of them are pre-seed, relatively risky when I invested, but grew out of that risk, didn't raise a lot of money, and got to the right exits. Yeah, so I think really, I mean, the, the secret sauce is... Do you believe that the founder is not going to give up and like you know make sure that your downside's protected, right? Because... I mean, I, I, I talk to a lot of, I mean, I consider what we do more of like early growth equity, right? As opposed to venture as just a, a nomenclature or early growth, you know, just because it isn't the same if you look at it. And I talk to a lot of them and, and I take it this is later stage. They're more of the series A, but they tell me their math is, you know, maybe 10% are absolute zeros, you know, maybe 30% are kind of one to twos, right? And then, the rest are like five plus, right? And so, you know, if you if you really play tight and you're in a vertical solution, it might not be a year, it might not be two years, but generally you can get your money out. It's just, is the founder going to give up? Because then you're screwed. So I really think that that could be the special sauce with you is really identifying people that aren't going to give up. That's a big part of it. Um, and it's, it's a really hard thing to do, especially when they're not, when they're first time founders. Well, that's, that's one of the things that I know is not popular with, with, with LPs. So some of them, it is, some of it isn't, is I do look where they went to school and how they got there and sort of like who paid for it. And a lot of funds, especially kind of where you are, maybe LA, definitely San Francisco, they sort of look for like, did you go to Harvard, Stanford, Penn? Did you go to one of these top tier schools that show that you're sort of have what it takes did you go work at Facebook or Microsoft or, you know, a big name company, Snowflake even? Do you have the technical chops? I really don't care about that. I, I want to see a CTO on, you know, there's someone technical on staff, either as a founder or on staff that they trust that they've worked with in the past, where they have at least a technical component where they know how to build something and can build it at least or oversee it internally. I more care about a founder that knows how to sell that's had to sort of hustle and, and fight for what they've gone. So when I see a founder with like Rutgers or Illinois or Maryland or tech or, you know, what I would call a good school, but not a great school. I love seeing that. Even someone that went to like a, a bottom tier school, if they got there, they're on a scholarship or they grew up in a tough situation and that's where they went. I actually prefer that. Mm-hmm. I think it shows hustle and tenacity. It shows they're going to fight for what they're, they're doing. And one of my investors actually told me that I'm going to butcher the story. So I'm not going to tell it, but the sort of like the, 
and you probably know this is like the the pig and the pig and the chicken or something. The pig and the bacon. Or yeah, no, that one. No, wait, no, it's the it's the chicken and the the pig, and the pig's yeah. all in, right? <laughs> right. The yeah, yeah. You show up to the party egg. and yeah, you lay an egg, and then the pig's like, okay, I got to give something, and they you know cut part of them, and that's basically what I'm looking for is a founder that went to has that background that knows like this is my one chance, right? And I can't screw it up. I have to make this work. I'm going to fight for it. I'm going to fight all the way to the end, and then that's what I look for. And some of those background characteristics are some of the things I want. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um. I really like what you're doing. I really love that you said where where you're from because like it's so funny. Like now I'm a coastal VC. <laughs> I live yep. in San Diego. I was in like like this cow town shitty Phoenix for so long. And now I'm like <laughs> now I'm in San Diego. Now I'm part of the club, I guess. Um very much not part of the club. Um, but maybe one day. Um Scott, what do you what are some of the things that you had beliefs on when you started investing that have changed? So valuation is one thing that I've, I still am tinkering with. I was cheap would probably be the right word. I had it in the original pitch deck for fun one and actually met with another GP who was potentially going to invest and walked him through the deck and showed him a couple of sides. Like I'm cheap, 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 cheap. I'm all about valuation, getting at the right price is how I am in a lot of things. And he's like, no, no, you're conservative. Like, no, I'm cheap. No, you're conservative. I think I've actually bent on that a little bit. I do like evaluation. It's obviously a key part of the deal. But I think quality is also kind of underrated. And I think I need to pay up more than I do. And that's one lesson I've learned in the past is if the the company's at a five or a six or a seven pre versus a four, and they, I still really like the deal, you do the deal for the most part. Yeah, I think at that level, it doesn't matter as much. But like, what are you, what are you like judging quality on? I mean, the CEO, I mean, what he's telling you, that's such a hard thing to do. Because a good CEO or a good founder is a lagging indicator because you can't say someone's good until they've actually done something good, right? And, you know, or else it's just you're speculating, which is what we do. But, you know, if it's somebody that's done something, you're certainly not going to get a good price. You know, it's kind of like that VIN or like that triangle. It's price, market, and management. And it's like you can't have all three. Yeah. And that's if, if the right manager is there, the right founder is there, I'll pay up more. And I've done a couple of that in fund one. If it's there was not, one but, deal, like, which, uh, but meaning they've done something before, right? They've built a company yeah. and sold it. Well, it's not even just they built a company and sold it. They built a company in the exact same industry they're building for again, and they sold it, and it was a big outcome. There's two in my fund one portfolio. One had one went public, one sold for $100 million plus, and they're both doing literally, like to some extent, the exact same thing in the exact same industry again, five years later. So not 20 years later. You know, Recently, they're basically the playbook is already there. The cast of characters is already there. They're just repeating it. I love that. Um, what are you excited about in 2024? I think Q1 and Q2 will probably be pretty strong from a sales standpoint for startups. I think pipelines will look a lot better. I think they'll start closing sales. Money will loosen up a little bit from funding perspective for for them, not for funds. I think by Q3, Q4, things get kind of tough. I've been trying to figure out when or if things are going to move in a a material way, and I still have no idea. But tracking that will be interesting and then obviously i'm i'm having a kid my first kid in march so that's gonna be pretty transformative keep it keep it at one for a while dude it gets worse after one (laughs) see how one goes i know my wife wants more we'll see what happens yeah um it's hard well scott this has been speaking of which i need to pick up my three kids right now so um i think it's a good spot to uh to end uh where can people find you 
So uh, a couple of places. So my website, my personal one, garbervc.com is one way. Early light website's another way. Uh, LinkedIn's another way. What's your only fans? <laughs> if I had one, I'd have uh, no subscribers and no money there. I don't have one. <laughs> Maybe someday when they try to diversify from what they're doing to like business stuff. Who knows? Well, no, dude, you just got to put your feet up. People will buy your feet. Well, it's funny you say that because I watch Trashy Reality with my wife all the time. And there's... <laughs> I, I, there's probably like, I know what's her face, uh, Larsa from Real Housewives in Miami, I think has a podcast. She like sells pictures of her feet to people all over the place, <laughs> makes a ton of money. There's some woman on 90 Day Fiance, which we used to watch, but don't watch really now. She'll like fart into like a <laughs> some, something, like uh, a glass jar or something and was selling it for whatever she's selling it for. And it was like, she had so much demand. She like couldn't keep, uh, people were, dude, they want weird you things. you can sell your farts? <laughs> she did. Uh, how famous is she? Could I sell my farts? I don't even think she was that famous. She was on 90 day. Fian- wasn't that? Yeah. 90 day fiance that's for like pretty, a season or two. Yeah. But that's famous enough. I wonder how many, like that my, I'm wondering what my listenership needs to be for me to fart and sell it. Um, it's an aspiration. <laughs> it's an aspiration. That's a goal. That's a goal. That's a goal. Scott, thank you so much for coming in. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. Tell a friend. We drop an episode every Tuesday, and we will see you next week. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.